Welcome back, everyone. Last week, boy, we were talking about a man named William Branham. He was born in Kentucky. He went on to become a faith healer. He met a clan leader named Roy Davis, who really got him up and running in Jeffersonville, Indiana. He took his faith healing revival meetings all over the country and then all over the world. Unfortunately, when we left off last week, he had an unwelcomed visit from the Internal Revenue Service. And that's where we will pick up today. So, uh, obviously, this is a part two. If you have not listened to part one, go on back. Uh, The title is William Branham, Yikes, part one. Uh, So find that, give it a listen, and then come on back to this episode. Here we go. The IRS shows up on William Branham's doorstep, and he's thinking, guys, you've got the wrong guy. I wear cheap suits. I don't drive a fancy car. I've got this modest home in Jeffersonville, Indiana. But this was a time when there was a crackdown on all these revivalists. Guys like Oral Roberts, Jack Coe, and others, they were all being investigated. The IRS had decided that income reported by these ministers as non-taxable gifts was taxable. And even though Branham wasn't really profiting much himself, it appeared, we'll find out that his colleagues and investors were. So the IRS charges him. Most of these revivalists settled out of court. And in their investigation, they found that... uh, Branham just didn't appear to be paying attention to the amount of money flowing through his ministry. He wasn't documenting gifts and donations he received, nor was he documenting his spending. So where was the money going? Turns out people in his campaign were making a ton of money. So Branham reported an income of $7,000. That's around 65 grand today. Now, that's still more than double the average U.S. income in 1955, but that's not the zinger. His publicist and longtime manager, Gordon Lindsay, was making $80,000. Okay, that means that in today's money, he was making about $760,000 a year annually from this revival business. That's about 24 times the average income in 1955. So a few notes on Gordon Lindsay, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but he was born in Zion, Illinois, and his early influences were people like Clem Davies, who was a strong supporter of the Klan and Christian identity theology, which if you don't know, just look it up. It's not good. Lindsay was also the, quote, first evangelical preacher slash writer to assume the link between the UFO phenomenon of his day and the fallen angels in Genesis 6. He wrote several books about the subject, as well as articles in the Voices of Healing magazine. This is the guy that's been managing William Branham and making three quarters of a million dollars off of him. So this is a problem, and they did eventually settle out of court. Branham admitted He admitted to tax evasion, and he agreed to pay a $40,000 penalty, which he never did completely pay off, by the way. So, after the bad press and some rescinded invitations to come to Europe, reports of people not being healed, and then a little tax evasion, things start to wind down a bit for Branham. Several ministers who used to be associated with him severed ties with him and went on to do their own thing. And in 1956, the healing revival movement really reached its peak. There were 49 separate major evangelists hosting these giant meetings. And Branham really didn't like this. He urged these guys to stop focusing on national fame and support and help their local smaller churches, because of course that would mean less competition for him, right? But the other guys weren't interested in doing that. They too wanted fame and notoriety and success, and to help people, hopefully. Um, 
But he still had his moments. Uh, Branham had a good turnout in Mexico in 56, like 20,000 people. But he could feel his fame slipping away. He used to get hundreds, if not a thousand letters a day. Now he was lucky to get 75. He was hoping this was only a temporary phase, though. He thought they'll be back. Um, He thought he had a third act to perform. He told everyone he had these big visions for the future, but the people around him had their doubts. In fact, Gordon Lindsay parted ways with Branham after the IRS scandal in 56. So after that, Branham was mad. He, He called out the publication they'd started together, that Voices of Healing, saying that it was all about making money, not promoting the common good. And things went downhill from there. He started burning bridges with most of the people in his network. He, specifically, he was going after this guy uh, who had become kind of a big deal, A.A. Allen. Allen had actually won his lawsuit against the IRS, and he'd been doing really well. But Branham was alleging that the miracles Allen was reporting during his campaigns were fraudulent, were, were not valid. And... In response, Allen drafted this letter and gave it to everyone at the Christian Fellowship Convention. And it was a letter criticizing Branham for creating divisions within the church. Not only that, but the letter also hinted that Branham may die soon as a result of his actions. Now, do you guys remember how we first got here? I was listening to a podcast about a Nazi who started a cult that was inspired by Branham's teachings. That was Paul Schaefer. But Paul Schaefer wasn't the only cult leader inspired by William Branham. Enter Jim Jones. Let's talk about Jim Jones for a minute, just in case you guys aren't familiar with the details. Um, He grew up in a oneness Pentecostal congregation. He became a student pastor at a Methodist church when he was 21. He opened his own small church called Community Unity. That name is a swing and a miss. And then he bought a church building in New Jersey, and he called that congregation Wings of Deliverance. His wife said that the church was always a tool for him to achieve his goal of social change through Marxism. It was never about a deep care for religion or his faith. He was basically using Christianity as a front for brainwashing, attracting followers. He is literally recorded saying, quote, How can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. And he needed help with this. It would help to have some genuine religious icons, if you will, to help get people on board. So Jim Jones of Jonestown invited William Branham to speak with him at his self-organized religious convention held at the Cato Tabernacle Auditorium in Indianapolis in June of 1956. And Branham could still draw a crowd at this point. This is just the same year as the tax evasion stuff. He's got plenty of loyal followers and he draws a crowd of over 11,000 people and he performs his miracles on stage And Jim Jones is like, man, this guy is great. He's got the stuff. He knows how to suck people in. And so Jones starts studying William Branham, his styles, his methods, his teachings. And according to historians, Branham is the reason that both Paul Schaefer and Jim Jones started their communes in South American countries. Because you see, Branham had a prophecy that the U.S. was going to be destroyed in nuclear war. Okay. So, there's that. Now, remember how I said the revival movement peaked in 1956? By 1960, the number of evangelicals holding national campaigns was down to 11. Many Pentecostal churches withdrew their financial support for the healing revival simply because it was too expensive. And there were conflicts between different denominations. Some were starting to realize that a lot of the healing was being sensationalized. 
it was kind of a jumble of things, but the whole concept of faith healing was starting to lose traction. It didn't completely go away because there are still pockets where it's practiced today, but it's certainly not all the rage that it, it once was. So Branham started transitioning to a teaching ministry. Now, he had avoided controversial topics throughout his career from the get-go, but now he was ready to talk about them, to get into that controversial stuff. He didn't really have much to lose anymore. And by the 1960s, most of the people he'd worked with in the past considered him an extremely controversial teacher. The leaders of Pentecostal churches begged him to stop teaching and go back to just praying for the sick. He responded by saying, here's the deal. The whole point of my healing ministry was to attract audiences. Now that I've got the audiences, thanks to the healing stuff, I have to teach them the doctrines I have personally received via supernatural revelation. At first, he was just teaching at his own church in Jeffersonville, but in the 60s, he started preaching at other churches, and he would do this, he would get himself into trouble with his criticisms of Pentecostal organizations, and especially his views on holiness and the roles of women, which, boy howdy, we haven't even gotten to yet. And so at this point, he pretty much severed all ties with the Pentecostal church, as well as the growing charismatic movement. He's making a lot of enemies. But somehow during all of this, and this might be why Jim Jones felt so inclined to study him, his followers, his true followers, were more dedicated than ever. Some thought he was the Messiah. They started to baptize and pray in his name. And... He, at first, he was like, hey, whoa, 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 don't, don't do that. That's heresy. People didn't seem to care, though. Some would move from wherever they lived to be closer to him in Jeffersonville. And then he moved to Tucson in 1962, and a bunch of his followers went with him and set up a colony led by a guy named Leo Mercer, who would become sort of a right-hand man for Branham. And I want you to keep that name in your back pocket, Leo Mercer. It's kind of interesting. A bunch of people followed him to Arizona because they believed the rapture was coming and they needed to be near him. And apparently Branham actually feared a cult was forming and was like, we can't let this get out of hand here. Some of his followers had already been compiling his sermons, treating them as oral scripture, and a significant amount of them believed in his divinity. So like I said, in his later years, he's more focused on teaching than touring around doing his healing stuff. And some of the concepts that he focused on were annihilationism, oneness, predestination, eternal security, and the serpent's seed, among many others. Some of these things were pretty run-of-the-mill at the time. Some were fringe and got a lot of criticism. His followers started calling his teachings the message. And then some people started calling it Branhamism or Branhamology. Now, I'm not going to get too far into his biblical teachings because I will get totally lost. I'm not good at this stuff. But if you're curious about what he was teaching and what like denominations he was combining and why he was offending so many people, it's all laid out on Wikipedia under the later life teachings header. Okay, so you, if, if you know that stuff better, go check it out. Um, but he maintained his support for faith healing and said that all sickness was a result of demonic activity and could be overcome by the faith of the person desiring healing. And this went back to the idea that if someone he attempted to heal didn't get better, that was on them for not being faithful enough. According to Wikipedia, his teaching on Christian restorationism has had the most lasting influence on modern Christianity. And I think this is really interesting. 
you know, his later critics said he was he was dividing people, but he urged his audiences to unite and restore a form of church organization like the primitive church of early Christianity. This teaching also supports things like the restoration of apostles and prophets, signs and wonders, spiritual gifts, spiritual warfare, as well as the elimination of modern features of non-primitive Christianity. So that's sort of his baby. That's his lasting influence. Take it or leave it. I don't know. I don't know enough about religion to have an opinion on that part, but what I can get down with is that he taught that the corruption of the modern Christian church came from a desire to obtain political power. He said that's a big problem. And he said once we figure out how to get back to a more primitive structure and stay out of politics, the rapture will come. What I cannot get down with were his views on, quote, modern culture. (sighs) For example, he taught that immoral women and education were the central sins of modern culture. Branham viewed education as, quote, Satan's snare for intellectual Christians who rejected the supernatural and, quote, Satan's tool for obscuring the simplicity of the message and the messenger. So he's saying, you know, we make people too smart, they start questioning the interpretation of the Bible, and we can't have that. He denounced cigarettes, alcohol, television, rock and roll, and lots of other fun stuff. But what he really hated, more than all of that, was women. Women, first of all, were breaking God's commandments when they cut their hair short. He hated when women wore makeup. They were committing adultery if their appearance was intended to motivate men to lust. He preached that a woman's place is in the kitchen. He preached that woman was not part of God's original creation, but that she was a byproduct of man. And to drive all of this home, I would be delighted to read you a direct quote from the horse's mouth. Oh boy. Quote, There is nothing designed to stoop so low or be filthy but a woman. A dog can't do it. A hog can't do it. A bird can't do it. No animal is immoral, nor it can be, for it is not designed so it can be. A female hog can't be immoral. A female dog can't be immoral. A female bird can't be immoral. A woman is the only thing that can do it. She is designed alone for filth and unclean living. A dog can't and no other female can. It's just the woman that can. A dog or any other animal is once a year and that for her babies, not for sexual pleasure, but for her babies. The old sow hog, the old slut dog, once a year, one moment, that's for her babies. But a woman is designed for any time she desires. A woman is a byproduct of man. She's not even in the original creation. That's exactly right. By her beauty and her sex control, her shape that was given to her by Satan, the byproduct that Satan did, she is sent to deceive sons of God. And she can sway more of them to hell than any other instrument Satan has got. That's exactly right. Only a piece, scrap, made of a man to deceive him by. God made it. Right here has proved it. That's what she was made for. I've got a couple more quotes here for you. I figure if we're going to get into it, let's really just go all in. So here we go. Quote, The kind of woman that a man would choose will reflect his ambition and his character. If a man chooses the wrong woman, it reflects his character. And what he ties himself to shows truly what's in him. A woman reflects what's in the man when he chooses her for wife. It shows what's down in him. No matter what he says outside, watch what he marries. And then here's another one. Quote, 
When God made a man first, he made him both male and female in spirit. He made him in his own image, and God is a spirit. When he separated him and put him in flesh, he put the masculine spirit in a man and the feminish spirit in a woman. And if anything's contrary to that, there's a bit of perversion there. Exactly. You see a woman trying to act like a man, there's a little something wrong there. The cell's crossed up somewhere. That's right. You see a man so sissified that he won't preach against sin or nothing else like that to hurt somebody's feelings. There's a cross up there somewhere too. Not only his natural birth, but spiritual birth. Oh, what we need today is that a man be a man, a woman, a lady. God intend them to be that way. Dress different. Say, you're hammering us women. Now I'm going to tell you about the man. Any man that'll let his wife smoke cigarettes and wear them shorts and act like that, there's very little man in him, in my opinion. There's also a copy of a note that I will post on the website. It's a note that Branham wrote to his dead baby daughter, Sharon Rose, and it says, God took you so you wouldn't become a modern girl daddy okay (laughs) so there's a lot there uh, to unpack but I think you all can you get the gist Um, and I want to move on and talk about some other things so let's let's talk a little bit about the serpent seed thing and his thoughts on um, predestination and race And bear with me here, because again, these the, these religious doctrines and their interpretations, it, it's not my strong suit. So, okay. Um, but Branham interpreted the Garden of Eden story as allegorical. And he thought that what happened was the serpent had sex with Eve, Cain was their offspring, and now descendants of Cain were roaming the earth in the form of educated people, scientists. And he believed that all of these people, anybody educated, was predestined to damnation. And that all the offspring of Seth were predestined to salvation. He hated educated people. And it's pretty obvious it's because they made him feel inferior and self-conscious. Because he was extremely uneducated himself. As you could probably hear in his quotes. Now, how does this relate to race? Okay, so if you'll remember, Branham's childhood and early adulthood were heavily influenced by the Klan and representatives of the Klan. So here's how that translated into his teachings, which were super racist. Branham used the term hybrid to describe anything he believed to be tainted by the serpent. And he accused Eve of producing a hybrid race and he traced this hybrid line of the serpent seed to Ham, Ham, the biblical progenitor of the African peoples, King Ahab, Judas Iscariot, uh, Roman Catholics, and the future Antichrist. Sorry about those pronunciations, guys. And Branham started openly teaching this theory of the serpent seed that was incredibly racist in 1958 at the height of racial unrest in the United States. And some of the quotes from Branham about race and sex are just the most disgusting things, and I debated whether or not to even include some of these, but we've come this far, and nothing drives a point home quite like a direct quote from the person, right? So I'm going to read you some more quotes. Quote, God is a segregationalist. I am too. Any Christian's a segregation. God segregates his people from all the rest of them. They've always been a segregation. He chose a nation. He chooses a people. He is a segregationalist. He made all nations, but still a real genuine Christian has to be a segregationalist. 
separating himself from the things of the world and everything and come into one purpose, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's that could be interpreted maybe a few different ways. This next one can't, okay? Here are his views on interracial marriage and the civil rights movement. Quote, What good would a white woman want to have a baby by a colored man making him a mulatto child? It's not sensible. If I was a colored man or a brown man or a yellow man or a red man, I would be just as happy about it. Yes, sir, I sure would. That's the way that my maker wanted me and that's the way I am. Right? Why does man want to tamper with anything for? When man gets into it, he ruins it. Let it alone the way God made it. Let a man be what he is. By the grace of God, let him be. But he has to cause great fusses now, calling our, causing riots and big fusses and everything else across the nations and across the world just because he wanted to stick his head out about something. That's the ignorance of the man. That's right. Hybrid, again. Instead of leaving it the way God wants it, He wants to make his own way. He has to do something about it, you know? He has to make his own self a name. God be merciful to him. It's a pitiful thing. By the time his serpent seed teachings came out, the Pentecostal church was pretty much done with Branham, if they weren't before then. His followers called it one of his greatest revelations. Women who got his approval for following his rules and living the way he wanted them to, they couldn't be prouder. They wore his approval like badges of honor. Well, that was kind of a bummer, so let's talk about some other stuff. Um, His ideas on the seven seals for example. I'm not going to get into all of the details, but he said that his sermons on the seven seals were inspired by two things, um, an angelic visitation and what he believed to be a supernatural cloud in Arizona that was visible in the American Southwest on February 28, 1963. He thought that the cloud looked like the face of Jesus, and he believed this experience meant the rapture was near. Turns out, that sign, that strange cloud, wasn't a message from God, but from the United States Air Force. The cloud had been created by an exploded Thor rocket carrying a classified spy satellite that failed to make orbit. The launch records were later declassified and confirmed this is what caused the cloud that day. But Branham would always say that the cloud was formed by angels who were sent to him while he was on a hunting trip. In his sermons on the seven seals, historians believe that while he didn't ever come right out and say that he was the anointed messenger heralding the second coming of Christ, he certainly implied it. And historians believe that he may have still had a little self-doubt about this, but most of his followers just believed it was him, and he didn't appear to have corrected them. Towards the end of his teaching career, some of his followers started to ask him questions uh, to clarify his relationship to Christ, because he would contradict himself, and he had made it so convoluted, he blended together so many different ideas that his followers literally couldn't keep up. And you can kind of get a sense of this just from reading some of his quotes and some of his writing. It is very hard to decipher sometimes what he's talking about. And I don't think that's because I don't know much about the Bible or Christianity. I think he just like rambled on a lot and it was hard to keep up. Okay, now um, this is kind of entertaining. You know, all these these guys, these faith healers and, and these leaders, they wanted to be fortune tellers, right? They loved sharing their prophecies and Branham was no exception. So let's talk about some of those. All the way back in 1916, he predicted that 16 men would fall to their deaths during the construction of the Clark Memorial Bridge. Uh, That's most of us call that the Second Street Bridge now. 
Uh, two people did die during construction. One fell and landed on a barge, and the other was struck by an iron crank. So hey, one for 16 on that prediction. Um, although I, I'm pretty sure bridge construction was pretty dangerous back then. Maybe still is, I don't know. But the chances of at least one person falling were pretty good, I think. So uh, that was one of his safer predictions. Of course, he also claimed that he had predicted the 1937 flood. Uh, the biggest ones, though, were prophecies he said he had in June of 1933. Although, it's important to note that he didn't publish anything about these predictions until 1956. He said that he saw seven major events that would occur before the second coming of Christ. The ones that happened before 1956 were the rise of Hitler, the Second World War, Italian occupation of Ethiopia, and the rise of communism. He also said he predicted self-driving egg-shaped cars. And then in 1960, he saw what we can assume was the GM self-driving Firebird 2, which, my friends, was produced and no doubt talked about in 1956. He also said he saw the U.S. electing the wrong president as a result of giving women the right to vote. And he later interpreted that wrong president to be JFK. He predicted a powerful woman that would take over the United States, which he later interpreted to be the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. Although now, if you look at some of his followers' websites, they're saying that what he predicted was actually Kamala Harris. Um, okay. Um, it, uh, it was inevitable that a woman gets into power at some point, right? Okay. And then his last prediction was the apocalyptic destruction of the United States, which would leave the nation's cities in smoldering ruins. In fact, he predicted that one of the places where the nuclear bomb would hit was Louisville, Kentucky. And like I mentioned, this would be a result of nuclear war and is what caused Schaefer and Jim Jones to set up their cults in South America instead of the states. And he predicted that the rapture would happen by 1977. Now, throughout the early 60s, Branham continued traveling and preaching. Uh, he would go to Canada, to the few places where he was still welcome. Uh, he would go, he would go all over the United States, and then sometimes to Mexico. He had one trip abroad in the 60s. That was in 1965. And he said he had a vision of himself preaching in front of a giant audience, and he was hoping that would entice the South African government to let him come back and have one of his meetings. Because remember, he'd been banned from preaching in South Africa. But they stood their ground. They said, you can come visit, but you will not be preaching to any giant audiences on our watch. <laughs> so, um... He was sort of down about all these connections he had lost, all the bridges he had burned. Um, he didn't have support from hardly any of the churches he used to work with, and that was starting to weigh on him a little bit. And even the churches who were still somewhat sympathetic towards what he was trying to do, they still wouldn't let him preach at their churches. They were afraid they might get excommunicated by their superiors. He hosted one final set of revival meetings in Shreveport, Louisiana in November of 1965. This was at a church run by his early campaign manager before Gordon Lindsay, um, a guy named Jack Moore. And I think Mr. Moore may have gotten a little more than he bargained for by allowing Branham to set up the revival meeting at his church. Because at this meeting, Branham finally did something he had not done before. He publicly stated for all to hear that he was, in fact, the return of Elijah the prophet. Like I said, he had kind of neither confirmed nor denied this in the past, but now he was putting it all out there. What did he have to lose at that point? He knew his career was winding down, might as well try to draw in a few more loyal followers before he just fades away. Shortly after that, Branham took his family to Tucson 
for a little vacation before they went home for Christmas. The whole family was together except for one daughter, Rebecca. So they had their vacation and they all piled in a car for the long drive back to Jeffersonville. And while driving through Texas on US 60, just after sundown, a drunk driver driving west in the eastbound lane struck Branham's car head on. Branham was rushed to an Amarillo hospital where he went into a coma. A coma he remained in for several days until he succumbed to his injuries on Christmas Eve, 1965. They had a funeral for him on December 29th, but held off on burying him until Easter 1966. Publicly, longtime colleague Gordon Lindsay said in his eulogy that Branham's death was the will of God. You know, Branham was only 56 years old, and by his own teachings, you know, that bad things happen to bad people and and you get punished for not having enough faith, and if bad things happen to you, that's because, you know, you had some evil in you. Um, It's just kind of interesting. It would be interesting to hear what he would have to say about his own death. Um, Also, the irony is not lost on me that a staunch supporter of the temperance movement throughout his life was killed by a drunk driver. That, uh, That is really something. Anyway, uh, yes, Gordon Lindsay publicly acknowledged that Branham's death was the will of God. However, privately, he accepted the interpretation of a man named Kenneth E. Hagen. Hagen was the founder of the Word of Faith movement, and he was not a fan of William Branham. By the way, Word of Faith is another one that's often considered a cult and has a reputation riddled with allegations of abuse. Anyway. Hagen prophesied Branham's death two years earlier, and according to Hagen, Branham died because God knew that he was teaching false doctrine and that he had to be removed because of his disobedience. It's really interesting to read about what historians think of Branham and how he got into this role he had and how he ended up upsetting so many of his colleagues. and. A lot of historians seem to speculate that he kind of got played because he was not well educated and people knew they could kind of use and manipulate him to do what they wanted. And they say people took advantage of his lack of theological training. Um, He was pretty much self-taught and he wasn't much of a listener. And he just read what he chose to read and then interpreted it however he wanted. And his friends knew that he would do this, and they profited off of it. And then his closest followers really kind of perpetuated the idea of him becoming a cult leader, whether he really wanted to be or not. Now, this is, again, just interpretations from historians. You know, I wasn't there. But it sounds like the really dedicated followers wanted something unique. They wanted something different from run-of-the-mill Pentecostalism or whatever else. And so when he started doing things that were controversial, they ran with it and they decided he would be their prophet, their leader. And then at the end there, he just kind of went with it. So let's talk a little bit more about Branham's followers. Um, He claimed to have converted over a million people throughout all his campaigns That number seems high, but if you look at how often he toured and how big the crowds were, um, it was a lot of people. I mean, he hustled. There's no doubt about that. Um, And then it's interesting. It it kind of, it, it faded out for a while. So in 1986, over 20 years after his death, there were believed to be about 300,000 Branham followers left. Um... But there is something called the William Branham Theological Association. In 2000, they had missions on every continent. They had 1,600 associated churches in Latin America and were seeing growth in their presence in Africa. And they got huge again. Branhamism got big. Um, In 2018... Uh, Voice of God recordings claim to serve Branham-related support material to about 2 million people and estimated there were anywhere from 2 to 4 million Branham followers on Earth 
today. That's a lot of people. After Branham died, his followers did not come together and unify. In fact, things got messy. Uh, a bunch of people actually claimed to be his immediate successor, the Elijah to his Elijah. And other followers were like, yeah, I don't think so. He didn't mention anything about that. And so all these guys claiming to be his successors started their own little sects, really dividing his followers. Now, his two sons, Joseph and Billy Paul, lead the, uh, the William Branham Evangelical Association. They have the Voice of God recordings and all that. And they influence a lot of churches. Um, and then there was a guy named Perry Green who took over in Arizona, and a guy named Ewald Frank who started preaching Branhamism in Germany. So the divisions are really based on what you believed Branham really was. Was he just a person or a divine being? And was he coming back? Followers of Branham's sons expect the resurrection of William Branham to fulfill unfinished prophecies. The other sects believe he will not be coming back, that his prophecies will have a spiritual fulfillment. And then others believe that he was the return of Christ. So there's a wide range of what modern Branham followers believe. They also vary on what they do with his more extreme uh, controversial teachings. You know, the racism and sexism. Some strictly adhere to all of that. They maintain his original interpretations of things and, and they go by whatever he said. And then others have tried to put a modern, uh, less terrible spin on his teachings. Some of his followers to this day refuse medical treatment because of their belief in divine healing. So there's a nice legacy. After his death, he's still tricking people into not going to the doctor when they're sick. Some of his followers have set up these tight-knit, secluded communities where they don't have TV or internet or any access to the media. They've set up their own schools. Some of these communities even prohibit having any sort of relationship with anyone outside the community. And if you do, you might get shunned or disowned. People who try to leave often face extreme repercussions. Here's a quote about that. Quote, Those who have come out of this group give solemn evidence of the devastating effect that Branhamism had on them, both emotionally and psychologically. In fact, the followers of Branham pray that evil will come upon people who leave their church. Critics of Branham followers have reported being threatened with violence or even death. News outlets have reported being harassed by his followers just for criticizing them. And these communities are set up around the world, and they have trouble just existing in their respective countries. Um, there are Branham communities in Iran, and in 2018, the government shut down 10 of their churches and jailed a bunch of their followers. In 2020, Russia labeled Branham missionaries extremists and banned the importation of Branham materials. And here's the deal, guys. A lot of these modern Branham followers are bad people. They just are. Not all of them. Not every last one of them. So don't, don't sue me. And when I say followers, I guess I should say leaders. It's more so the leaders. So let's talk about that. And I can give you examples until I'm blue in the face. And that's what I'm going to do. So if you'll recall, when Branham first moved to Tucson, some of his followers went, went as well. And they were led by a man named Leo Mercer who was just a super mega fan of William Branham. Well, after Branham died, Mercer kept the followers together. He kept leading this community they called The Park. And in 2008, authorities investigating his group found that, quote, following Branham's death in 1965, Mercer gradually became more authoritative, employing various forms of punishment. He would ostracize people from the community and separate families. 
Children were beaten for minor infractions like talking during a march or not tying their shoes. Mercer would punish girls by cutting their hair and force boys to wear girls' clothing. There was also evidence that Mercer sexually abused children. For the record, I feel like I should read you a quote from Branham about Leo Mercer. Quote, Mr. Mercer was formerly in a Catholic from up here in Michigan somewhere, I believe. They formed their little FBI party and come down to find out whether that gift was true or not. They found it, as the Lord always does, and now they've been with me for some time. How long you been along, Brother Mercer? Four years. Found them to be real, honest boys, right on the mark. Okay, that's how Branham described Mercer. Real, honest boy, right on the mark. Now here's another quote about what Mercer was doing to children in the park. Quote, in one instance, Mercer ordered that a girl's hair be cut off to punish her because he had a vision from God that she was being sexually inappropriate with young children. She was beaten and forced to wear masculine clothes that covered much of her body, hiding her bruises. Her fingertips were burned so she would know what hell felt like. Plenty of other examples. Uh, the Living Word Fellowship had over 100 churches at one point. Uh, it was founded by John Robert Stevens, who was heavily influenced by Branham's teachings. It came out in the 70s that they were a doomsday cult, and they disbanded in 2018 after widespread allegations of child molestation. We already talked about Paul Schaefer a little bit. He's the reason I found out about Branham. Branham. But yeah, his, uh, his colonia was a compound he built so that he could steal, molest, and torture children. He was heavily influenced by William Branham. The guy who continued Branhamism in Germany, Ewald Frank, was banned by the Chilean government after they realized he was holding Branham-style revival meetings at the colonia with Paul Schaefer. In Zimbabwe, a leader of Branham followers named Robert Martin Gambura was arrested in 2014 and convicted for raping multiple women in his congregation. Turns out they were polygamists, and he reportedly had relations with over 100 women in the church. And the polygamy thing is not unique to Branham followers in Africa. It's been reported in the States as well. Specifically, there have been reports of Branham followers being married to multiple minors. Polygamy is another thing that divides Branham followers. Some are into it, others are firmly against it. As far as I can tell, polygamy was not something Branham supported or even really talked about. You know, he hated women, so I can't imagine he would be an advocate of marrying more than one of them. But the argument that proponents of polygamy use is an interesting one. One of Branham's most famous sermons was one called Marriage and Divorce, and some say that he gave the go-ahead for polygamy in this sermon, that, quote, according to Branham, since women introduced men to sex, polygamy was brought about. Women had to be punished, so men could have many wives, but women only one husband. So what they're saying is basically, we should be allowed to be polygamous because we have to punish these women. William Branham said so. In 1997, Wayne Evans is accused of defrauding the Odom Nation in Arizona of over a million dollars and giving that money to the Voice of God Recordings. The Voice of God Recordings, I do believe, is run by one of Branham's sons, and its home base is in Indiana. Uh, so the tribe filed a racketeering case against the Voice of God Recordings. Evans pled guilty to embezzlement in 2001, and the money was returned to the tribe. In 2014, Pastor Donnie Reagan was in the headlines for promoting Branham's racial teachings. Man, this guy is the worst. You can watch videos of him ranting about biracial babies. He's been frequently called the most racist preacher in America. Um, and he apologized once, and the apology was basically, 
Guys, you know, I'm sorry, and I'm not racist. I just don't marry interracial couples. <laughs> okay, this guy still preaches. Uh, it's the Happy Valley Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. And this guy loves William Branham's teachings. But wait, there's more. 2017, there are these street preachers in Canada promoting Branham, and they make headlines in the U.S. and Canada for their aggressive behaviors. Their behaviors led officials to pass legislation regulating their activities in 2019. They were arrested both in the U.S. and Canada at various times for harassing women for their appearance and interrupting church services. These guys were in the news again in 2021 for evading arrest after attacking women at a Presbyterian church in Canada. 2018, Democratic Republic of Congo. A Branham church leader, Pastor Theodore Mugalu, encourages his followers to force 145 Catholic nuns and priests to strip naked, cover their heads, and film their whippings. And then there are reports all over the world of just a handful of people out on the streets preaching Branham's message and harassing the shit out of people, especially black people and women. You can pull up article after article about this happening everywhere to this day. The Branham Tabernacle is still across the bridge there in Jeffersonville. Looks like his son Joseph is still preaching, and their big thing is uh, selling recordings of the sermons all over the world. Uh, One of the sons started the voice of recordings business that's in a giant building on what appears to be a 20-acre lot in uh, Sellersburg, maybe? Um, Apparently, they had about a 1,000 people at every service before COVID. So, like I mentioned, the divisions within modern Branhamism address his controversial stuff differently. Although, apparently, the local division doesn't address it at all. On their website, you really can't find anything that'll acknowledge all the racism and the sexism and everything. There is one tab on their FAQ page that says doctrinal questions, and when you click on it, this is what you get. Quote, we would rather not enter into doctrinal discussions, so questions about the seven thunders, third pull, return ministry, etc. will not receive a detailed response. We will respond with a confirmation that we received your email and include a link to the online resources where you can research these topics. All right. Uh, They have a camp in Lexington, Indiana called Stillwater's Youth Camp. The dress code and the quotes they refer to when explaining the dress code are really something. If you're curious, I will link to that page on the website. But I do want to go ahead and read you one of them. And this this is about the dress code at the youth camp. Quote, Women, don't be like the world. Don't dress like the world. Don't be these modern things and all this stuff that they're doing. Keep away from it. You're a daughter of a king. They also provide special mandatory bathing suits and say that all male and female guests will be completely segregated. I'm going to link to so many articles on the website relating to this story, but I want to mention a few now that I think are really worth your time if you want to learn more about this. One is from CBC Canada, and it's called How a Dead U.S. Evangelist Inspires London's Reviled Street Preachers. And that one includes part of an interview with a man named John Collins, who was born into what he describes as a Branham cult. And he talks about his experiences uh, growing up in that cult a little bit. There's also a document that I found that appears to be written by one of William Branham's daughters in the late 80s. It basically talks about how her family uh, stole her inheritance and had moved a lot of funds around shortly before Branham died. It conveys frustration over how rich the other siblings are while being completely unwilling to help her. Uh, Same with the other divisions of modern Branham churches, even the one in Germany. She reached out to everybody. No one will help her. And it's a very interesting read. Also, please watch the 11-minute video I post uh, with the interview of Branham in his home. That's that's really something, too. Um, a couple quick notes here, and I, I am going to... I'm almost done. <laughs> I know this, this got long. 
Um, I want to read a couple last notes, and then I, I also want to read a couple things from people who have left the church. So first of all, I wanted to say uh, the history of faith healing is really fascinating. Obviously, it didn't start with William Branham. It didn't end with William Branham. It is a very interesting thing to learn about if you're looking for something to research for funsies. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that while faith healing is not illegal that I know of, there are some states where as a parent, you can be charged with negligent homicide if you decide to rely on prayer and do not seek medical care for your sick child. The last thing I want to do is read you all two uh, testimonies, basically, and I want to let you sit with these. Um, they're about people's experiences in in the church, in the Branham Church. The first one is from William-Branham.org, and it's from it's under the tab "The Predators in Our Church." Quote: Through the years. Many former members of William Branham's message cult have contacted us with descriptions of sexual abuse. Besides the documented cases of molestation, rape, and torture on our website, the private groups we've worked with have resulted in numerous testimonies of sexual abuse, with predators ranging from common rank-and-file members to cult leaders themselves. Until the sexual abuse of an underage boy was the center of attention in one of the message churches in Canada, Members of the cult following, not yet victimized, were largely unaware this problem existed in the group. A large percentage of the predators were either given sanctuary or privacy in the message, and potential victims were not warned of the predators in their midst, as is standard procedure in mainstream Christian churches. As a result, the problem continued to exist, and likely still exists today. There have not been very many who are able to tell their story about being abused. For current members and former members alike, victims are often further victimized after becoming vocal. This is a problem that is not unique to the message cult. Former members of other cults often describe victims hushed through shaming. Unfortunately, the current laws in the U.S. legal system are not strict enough to protect our victims, and many predators go free. Eric contacted me to share his story of abuse in the message cult, and we are publishing it today. Though I do not personally know Eric, what he describes is all too familiar. Many of our former members will recognize what Eric describes, and if not for the location, might even think they were victimized by the same predators. The names have been removed from this story to protect Eric. As time permits, the names will be further researched. If documented evidence of the predators still exists, the information will also be published on our website under the resources section. Here is Eric's story. I'm 33 from a small town called Petrolia in Ontario, Canada. I was born into William Branham's message cult. My mother met my father at a message church camp when she was 18 years old. He was age 23 from Ontario, and she from Jeffersonville, Indiana. I was born March 13, 1984, with a severe case of Tourette syndrome. I only made it through first grade when my mom found out they were putting me in the teacher's lounge due to my involuntary tics disrupting the other students. After that, she got upset at the teachers and decided to homeschool. It was very difficult for me. At the message church, they laid hands and told me I was healed at least once a week. My mother kept telling me, you have to believe, but it didn't work. I got very angry at this so-called God because my tics continually got worse. Still, I continued to be told that I have to believe I was healed. I would often get in trouble for not going up and crying with all the others before the church. Even at age 16, I knew this was cult mentality. I was able to leave the church, but not before the damage was already done. I was molested. It was at a very young age and by a cult member who was a close friend of the family. He was a predator. I don't even remember when it started. As I got older, I felt as though it was my fault, so I didn't say anything until after age 20. By that time, the problem had grown. 
Other children in the church were also victimized, including my sister, and by a different person. One of the cult members preying on children lived in a trailer on my aunt and uncle's property in Michigan. Later, he stayed with my grandparents in Indiana. He wore cowboy boots, had a gimp hand, and a trick. He pretended to pull quarters out of children's ears to trick them into sitting on his lap. We learned that he was wanted by the FBI for molesting multiple girls. I'm told that one of the predators in my childhood message cult church has been caught. The damage has already been done. Trust in our family is gone. I am no longer a message believer. The last thing I want to read you is part of an interview with a Canadian woman named Rebecca Woods, who was raised in the Branham Church. And the interviewer asks her, how are some of the theological points of the message translated into family life for children from the point of view of a girl? And she says, as I mentioned, swimming was compromised at a long, heavy skirt. Girls struggled in sports activities, unlike the trousered boys. You were self-conscious about showing your shoulders or the skin below your collarbone or flashing your knees. Clothes shopping was near impossible. I needed my father to look me over and approve, and often he never did. On one occasion, my father was lucky enough to receive benefits from his warehouse job, and I exited the dentist's office happy as could be. I showed him the cheap ruby red ring the receptionist had given me. He lunged for it, threw it in the garbage can, and lectured me on the drive home. The same happened with Christmas presents. My mother cut up with scissors the My Little Pony relatives sent in the mail. Everything was a demon. Mom drowned my demon-possessed cat in the creek once. The next question is, as a girl becomes a young adult, what happens to her? What are some of the coerced, even enforced expectations upon her? And Wood says, yes, she must marry with her father's approval. Her father's leadership remains until she marries and her husband takes that role. Any beauty routine or wardrobe option may be subject to scrutiny and if she continues, preachers will point fingers and yell. He asks, how did you make the transition into young adulthood? She said, poorly, awkwardly, recklessly. I was a sitting duck for anyone who wished to take advantage of a clueless 18-year-old girl. She's asked, with abuse, what were the forms endured by you? How did you recover? Was there community support for you? She says, I suffered physical, emotional, and sexual. I've never fully recovered psychologically. Flashbacks and nightmares have lasted till this present day. But I'm grateful for my supportive spouse, my gorgeous son, and my therapist. Without them, I would have successfully committed suicide or overdosed. I'm in a better place now. My home life is secure. I'm loved. And then she's asked, what were excuses for abuse against other women in the church? She says, if the voice of God on the tape uttered violent threats that aroused doubt, he was suddenly just a man, a human capable of mistakes, or that certain somebody didn't mean to sound or act so harsh. Spiritual maturity happens at a different pace for everyone. Maybe they aren't far enough along in their walk with the Lord. They must seek repentance, but it's not our place to judge. The pastor himself wouldn't agree with that. Those were common dialogues amongst church members. The pastor himself never spoke on abuse towards women, and as many on the inside know, serious issues are hushed. I know this was a longer episode, and honestly, I could go on about this for hours more. I did this because when I heard that other podcast that mentioned this guy, I had never heard of him. And it's interesting. It's so close to home, and uh, I've never heard anybody else talk about it. And his, his work was like a tree. And the roots and the branches just jut out in so many directions and have influenced so many people in so many negative ways. And it's just amazing that no, that I have not heard of it. No one talks about it. 
Um, so it's one of those things where some people say, well, you shouldn't give a bad person a platform. Um, I'm not giving him a platform. Obviously, after listening to this, no one is going to go out and be like, oh, I, I'm going to buy all his books and, and preach the word. You know, I can't imagine that's what's going to happen. So um, I hope you guys learned something. And I'm sorry if I seem to just drone on at some points, but it's just, uh, it's a lot. There's a lot there. So um, if I need to make a correction, if I misspoke about some, some religious thing or a name or something, you can always send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Um, also make sure you're following everything on social media. I'm going to post lots of great photos about this guy's life. Just super interesting, kind of absurd photos. And I'll post all the links to all the stuff I mentioned on kyhistoryhaunts.com. And my dog Twyla was very unruly and asking for attention throughout this episode. So if you heard that little whining in the background, that's just little Twyla girl. And I'm sorry. All right, guys, that's all I've got. So... Take care and until next time.